Hey, good morning, church. Uh, we are back in the Gospel of John. We are starting chapter 16, and I'm going to read through uh, verse 15, starting in verse 1 of cha John chapter 16. Jesus speaking to the eleven in the upper room uh, on the same night that he was betrayed. He says these things. These things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. But now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. Let's pray. Jesus, we, uh, we as your church, we want all that you have to give us, all that you offer. We want all the, the life that is in Christ that is ours. Um, we want to experience it. And a lot of these things, of course, that you talk about here don't sound like any fun. They're not the kind of things we ask for. Um, they're not the promises that, that we want to claim are yes and amen in Christ. Um, so we pray that you would strengthen us. Strengthen us in the inner man that each one of us would be able to receive what you have, that we would be able to follow you uh, even through these things, and that now as, as you teach us, God, that we would be receptive and would not turn away any of the truth that you would have to give us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so John chapter 16, now a little bit of review here. You can see uh, that Jesus has been talking for a few chapters already. We're coming into the middle of of kind of a long speech, really. It's sort of a conversation, but Jesus is doing most of the talking. And the setting here is that Christ is leaving. He's told the disciples, he's been telling them for a long time now, that he's going to be delivered up to the Jews, crucified, uh, put to death, and even that he would rise again. They're not really picking up on what he means by that. They're not taking him literally or seriously. Uh, but they know now that Jesus is leaving. He's been very, very clear on this point that he's going somewhere that they can't come. And chapter 15 was all about abiding, right? It was abiding through obedience. That was sort of the message of chapter 15, abiding in Christ. Um, in, in verse 18 and following of chapter 15, we, we saw the consequences of abiding in Christ. There are consequences to being united with God. And we compared that sort of uh, with the passage in James that says friendship with the world is enmity with God. And we recognize in John 15, 18 to the, through the end of the chapter that the opposite is true. Friendship with God means enmity with the world. But Jesus told the disciples in verse 26 of chapter 15, 
the help is coming. It says, when the helper comes, or the comforter, uh, the Greek word is the parakletos. That's the, a word for the Holy Spirit um, that, that's specific to, to this passage here. When the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. Help is on the way. Uh, now, the same format here is in chapter 16. There's persecution promised. He says, don't be surprised. I'm telling you this so that you don't stumble when it happens. They're going to think that they offer God's service when they kill you. The time is coming, not in a matter of, of years, but a matter of days when they will put you out of the synagogue. Jesus is, is warning them what the next weeks are going to hold for them. Persecution is promised, but so is the Holy Spirit. It's the same format. He, he, he offers uh, a warning and then comfort, saying that there is help on the way so that the disciples would be able to endure through that time. In verses 1 through 4 of chapter 16, it talks about the persecution that is coming for them. And then verses 5 through 15 talk about the Holy Spirit and, and His ministry, what He is already doing in the world, what He would do in and through the disciples. So let's go back to verse 1 of chapter 16. It says, These things I have spoken to you. What things? Um, well, both the good news and the bad news. He, he talked about the persecution that's coming after he leaves. He's talking about the helper that's coming, who can only come if he leaves. He's warning. And, and warning w without help wouldn't really prevent stumbling. Um, you know, you think of Jude... Uh, 124, you know, this is kind of our hope when it comes to stumbling and failing. Uh, Jude writes, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, there's our hope. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God, our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. So he gives them the warning, but he doesn't leave it just as a warning for their eventual demise. He offers uh, the helper who is able to keep them from stumbling. And Jesus is saying in verse 1 of chapter 16 that he's telling them these things, the warning and the offer of help, that they should not be made to stumble. Uh, to stumble, that's to, to trip, to fall. Uh, to make a mistake which causes you know, destruction in your own person. Um, and, and you can't really be stumbled by something that you are clearly aware of. Okay, if you know what a thing is, and where it is, and, and how big it is, and, and how stable it is, then you, you know how to avoid it or how much pressure to put on it with your foot. Um, now, of course, there's some of us that are more clumsy than others, and you can, you know, trip just while standing still, but in general, um, you can't stumble on something when you see it coming. When the lights are on and you know uh, what is in front of you, then you, you don't trip. The disciples would be able to avoid stumbling. They would not, however, be able to avoid suffering, which draws a pretty clear line that the disciples, when they would suffer for their faith, they would be aware that that was not in regards to some failure of their own. Right? That they would, they would realize that suffering for Christ was a joy, not a consequence of their wrongdoing. 
Jesus tells them that you would not stumble. Stumbling speaks of sin. It would be the, the lapse in faith, the turning from Christ. You know, if, if they had suffered the persecution that we read of in the book of Acts and throughout church history, if they thought, well, it, this can't be real. Our faith can't be solid. What Christ said can't be true because look what's happening to us. And you can imagine their faith failing if their expectations had been skewed and if their, their hope for the future wasn't tempered with reality. So Jesus is saying, don't think it's going to get better. In fact, he's been saying this all along. When he speaks to the disciples, he says, you know, don't say that I came to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. I came to bring division. I came to bring hostility. And those are hard words that we need to wrestle with. But he's warning them so that they don't stumble. So that when things get bad, the disciples don't lose their faith because they expected something else. Now, the disciples, they would not be able to avoid suffering, but with warning and the Holy Spirit, they would avoid despair. And they would avoid the, the, the lapse of faith that suffering can cause in the less prepared. So Jesus explains why he's saying what he's saying. He says, I'm telling you this so that you don't stumble. Verse 2, they will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. We'll read verse 3 as well. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. Now you can read about this uh, very clearly in the book of Acts. You, you can point to the, the moments that the disciples were cast out of the synagogue. But this means something, cast out of the synagogue. Of course, Jesus, a Jewish man, speaking to 11 Jewish men. Uh, the synagogue uh, was something in their context that we don't really have. Um, but it would be wrong to think of casting out of the synagogue as casting out of church. Those, those are not the same thing. Okay? Synagogue and church are not the same thing. When someone in their culture was cast out of the synagogue, that was not something that was only religious, though it was. It was the public square for religious Jews. It was community. The church uh, was, was more unified in times of persecution because they had nowhere else to go. They had no other community to be a part of because persecution primarily before it was being fed to the lions or being stretched out on the rack Persecution, first and foremost, is always a casting out from the public square, from the community. Then it gets physical after that. The, to be cast out of the synagogue was to lose your right to be a citizen of that city in Jewish thought. In verse 4, where it says, But these things I have told you, that when the time comes you may remember that I told you of them. He says, You will remember. And they did. Again, when you look at the book of Acts... Um, you know, they, they rejoice when they're beaten. They rejoice when they're cast out of the synagogue. And they could do that because the Holy Spirit would bring these things to remembrance, the things that Jesus said. They would remember, Jesus said, this is exactly the way it's going to happen. Now, last week, or sorry, not last week, last week we had our message on fasting. I hope you heard it. Hope you're participating. Pick a day this week. Fast, seek the Lord. Here's my advertisement, my plug for last week's sermon. Uh, but two weeks ago, when we were in John 15, finishing up that, that chapter, I made a point to, uh, to distinguish between real persecution, uh, for lack of a better term, 
and uh, other suffering, or, or what I sometimes call casual persecution. You know, you look at Voice of the Martyrs, you look at the church in North Korea, and under, um, uh, you know, communist China, you look at the, the persecution of the church um, in, in Muslim-majority countries, and, and there's some real persecution there that we, we have no context for as far as our, our experience goes in the West, in the United States. And I think it's important that we draw that line between that level of persecution and what we may feel is persecution. However, um, you don't have to have a, a, a real vibrant imagination to imagine Christians being removed from the public square. Uh, the infrastructure is already in place. This already happens. Uh, it happened probably in academia first. Academia and the internet, uh, not the inter the entertainment industry and the arts. Um, th th this does happen. No one should be surprised at this kind of thing. Again, we, we turn to James and say we count it all joy. But this is the kind of persecution that Jesus describes when he talks about being cast out of the synagogues. And then, of course, that escalates into, you know, what I would call full persecution, real persecution, hard persecution, where anyone who would kill you would think that he offers God service. Again, you can read about this in the book of Acts. You can read about this uh, throughout church history. Now, and again, two weeks ago I mentioned that the 20th century saw more Christian martyrs die, more Christians die for their faith in the 20th century than the previous 19th centuries combined. What set the 20th century apart, however, is that before 1900, before the majority of martyrs died at the, ha at the hands of other religious people, either other religions or even within Christendom. You have the Catholics and the Protestants going back and forth and killing each other during uh, certain darker centuries. In the 20th century, it was uh, atheism, it was a branch of humanism that saw so many Christians killed. Uh, however, uh, I wouldn't... While the 20th century stands apart from the previous centuries in many ways, the persecution that Christians faced was still a type of religious persecution. While the, uh, you know, the, the communists in Russia and, and elsewhere that had so, saw so many Christians killed would say they were an atheistic regime, we know that there is a god of this world and that the world, uh, this world that we live in is under the sway of the wicked one. Um, most atheists aren't. Everyone worships something. People have that great cause, that great belief, that great ideal that they strive for that makes killing another person worth it. This was still done in a kind of worship. Uh, now, the, the, the um, disciples here and the first generation of the church, their first persecution would be uh, from the Jews, seeing the Christians as a, as a, as a heresy that needed to be dealt with. The Apostle Paul, of course, says that he goes and... and um, persecutes the church even to death, casting men and women and children into prison. Uh, that's what Paul did. After that, the Roman persecution ramped up, and there were ten uh, waves, really, of Roman persecution. And this would continue again throughout all of church history. It begins with a, a kind of a social, civil persecution, and then ramps up to uh, violence and, and martyrdom at its worst. But again, no one should be surprised when either of those things happen. 
This is what Jesus said. And he's saying in verse 4, I, I'm telling you these things that when, not if, but when the time comes, you, re you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. The disciples had Jesus as a shield during his ministry when they walked together, when they followed Jesus. The world's hatred, which is still directed at Christ, was, of course, still directed towards him, and they stood behind Christ, and he took the brunt of all the persecution. Now, the, the hatred of the world is still towards Christ, but now he has brought us into that experience, and while the world is certainly fighting against God, first and foremost, we are his representatives. We are his ambassadors. We are his image bearers, which means we as Christians, we as the church, are meant to take the brunt of the hatred of the world towards God. It's going to be directed at us. That is a promise from Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus says in verse 5, Now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, Where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Remember the, the attitude in the room. It's sad. It's, it's, a, it's not a, a fun, festive dinner. Um, the upper room is, is a, a somber environment for this evening. But these words are interesting for another reason. He says, no one asks me where are you going. And if you glance back at chapter 13, verse 36 you see that Peter did exactly that. Peter asks, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And then uh, Thomas, in chapter 14, verse 5, Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? So he kind of implies the same question. And Jesus says here, none of you asks, where are you going? So is this, it begs the question, is this a matter of emphasis? Is, is the meaning different because Peter emphasized one word, and now Jesus is emphasizing another one? Evidently, Peter's question wasn't the same. It wasn't the same question that Jesus is, is um, indicating here. Peter's question and Thomas's question were more like, what part of the country are you going? Or, which of our friends' houses are you going to hide in? And really, the, the question behind the question, which Jesus knew the whole time, was, can I come, or why can't I come? This is like God saying to Abraham, you know, Abraham, I, I need you to do something with your only son, Isaac. And Abraham could have easily raised his hand and been like, I have another son, like Ishmael. You, we, we named him Ishmael, remember him? But God's like, no, 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 I mean your only son. And what? It exposes the hearts. It exposes their hearts and exposes God's heart. So when Jesus says, no one is asking me where are you going, he says, no one's asking this question in the right way. Or you're asking, you know, where are you going today? Where are you going this afternoon? But you can understand that that question can have a lot more depth if you say, where are you going in life? And, and the disciples asking, where are you going? Like, are you going to that room? Are you going back to the town of Bethany? Are you going up to Galilee? And Jesus is saying, no, you need to ask me where I'm going. Like, where is my destination? Like, the whole trajectory of my life is heading towards an objective. What is that objective? None of you are asking that. None of you are asking what my purpose is. That's what he, that's what he means, I believe, when he says, none of you asks me, where are you going? 
You're not asking about the purpose. You're not asking about the big picture. You're thinking too small. In chapter 17, when Jesus prays, we'll see that his purpose, the trajectory, the objective, it's all headed towards glorifying God in his life and his death. That kind of answer wouldn't do with the type of question that Peter and Thomas and the others were asking. So Jesus is emphasizing this thing by exposing, he's exposing Peter's heart, Thomas's heart, exposing his own heart by saying, you didn't ask the right question or you didn't ask it hard enough. You didn't ask it in the right heart. But he tells them that sorrow has now filled their hearts. Nevertheless, he says, I know you're sad, but I'm here to tell you some important stuff. Jesus is bringing bad news to them, but he's not doing this in a heartless way. He, he's providing the wound and, and the bandage. He's providing the poison and the antidote. He says, I know everything I've said has made you feel a certain way. I know that everything I've said would make a natural man fear, but I'm telling you that, that you don't have to be afraid. And I know everything I'm telling you is, is making you feel lonely and isolated and you're worried about going out into that world as sheep among wolves, like I sent you before. But I'm telling you, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, verse 7, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Now, the helper has already been identified back in verse 26 of chapter 15 as the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. And his job has already been explained to us in chapter 15, verse 26. He will testify of me. Okay, so we know who this character is. We've, we've had an introduction to the Holy Spirit when we were in chapter 14. But this claim of Christ is quite extreme. Jesus says, I'm telling you the truth. I'm not kidding. It's actually going to be better for you. I know you're sad right now because I'm telling you that I'm leaving and you're sad, but I'm telling you it's better for you. It's better if I go away. Now, that's remarkable because Jesus is a really good guy to have around, right? I mean, if you're in a boat in a storm, you know who you want with you? Jesus. Either he's going to come walking on the, on the water and then deal with it that way, or he's going to stand up and rebuke the wind and the waves. That, that sounds great. Okay, at a funeral, you want Jesus there. He goes to the tomb and, and says, Lazarus, come forth. That's who you want in those situations. You want Jesus there when the Pharisees come and say, why don't your disciples wash their hands good enough? You have Jesus to back you up, to run defense against all your accusers. Jesus is a great guy to have around, and he says, it's better if I'm not here. It's better if I'm gone. Now, you, you need to examine your heart. I need to examine my heart and see if I believe Jesus about this. Because I know, I know that there have been times when I don't. And, and you may recognize in your heart the lack of faith here and saying, yeah, really, Jesus? Like, I don't have any problem with a you know, six-day creation, speaking the universe into existence by the word of your power. Like, I, I might not have any problem with those. I don't have a problem with resurrect, bodily resurrection of the dead. I don't have any problem with prophecy, gifts. I don't have any problem with that. But you're telling me that it's better that you are not here with me. I need some faith. And Jesus says, it's going to be better if I go. Why? Because being with someone physically does not mean you are with them 
relationally, uh, emotionally, spiritually. And to be with someone spiritually can be more real than only physical closeness. Now, let me give you a couple examples. Uh, who knew Jesus better? Peter in the upper room, right now, sitting a few feet from Jesus, or Peter at Pentecost, when Jesus was physically absent, seated at the right hand of the Father? I, I think you would agree that Peter at Pentecost knew Jesus a whole lot better. Or, or how about this? Maybe just remove it from the, the Bible scriptural theological context. Let's say you are on a phone call and you're on the phone in a very busy place. You know, it's, it's a crowd. It's a crowded restaurant, coffee shop, airport. I don't know. And there's people all around you, but you're talking to that one person that you love. Who are you closer to? There's a kind of closeness that is for the disciples only after Jesus leaves. Now, in 2 Corinthians uh, 5, uh, Paul writes this, is therefore from now on we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. He says we knew, you know, we, we knew Jesus as a guy who had a, who, who was human, you know, he had a body and, and everything. He was just a person. We knew him according to the flesh. And that's kind of how the disciples knew Jesus, even now. Even after, you know, uh, Peter makes his confession, you're the Christ, the Son of, God, Son of God, he still knew Jesus in a way af according to the flesh, after the flesh. And Paul says, that's not the way we know Jesus anymore. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. There's a completely new kind of relationship that the disciples could have with Jesus after he ascended to heaven. It is better for us for Jesus to depart because it is better for us that Jesus be on the throne. It is better for us that we now have a man ever living to make intercession for us before his father. And that's how we know him. We know Jesus as King and Lord over all. The disciples didn't know him like that. We do not know him only according to the flesh. We know him according to his own spirit. And there's this interesting dynamic here that we read about in verse 7. Jesus would not send his spirit until he was enthroned in heaven. Until salvation was purchased on the cross, sealed by the empty tomb, he would not send his spirit to the disciples, to uh, his children. He cleansed the vessels before sending the living water to dwell in them. He says, it's better if I go, because if I go, I'll send the spirit. I'm not going to until I get home. When I get home, I can send you a care package. It's going to be the best one you've ever received. And then he, he explains what this is going to be like when he sends his spirit to his disciples. He says, when he has come... That's the helper, the spirit of truth. When he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to my father and you see me no more. Of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, Jesus is called the helper. Sorry, Jesus calls the spirit the helper, right? 
It's a great, you saw me put my notes up there on the camera. Uh, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit a helper. The Greek word I mentioned before is parakletos. It, it means someone at your side. Okay? It's the same word that's described in the Greek Old Testament for Eve. Adam was alone and it wasn't good. Right? It was not good. It was the first thing in paradise that was not good. Adam being alone. So God made him a helper. Someone to be at his side. And then it was very good. Jesus was leaving his disciples and he knew it's not good for us to be alone. It wasn't good in Eden. It wouldn't be in Jerusalem. It's, never, it's not good for us to be alone. So he sends us a, an alongside helper. And if we look what the Holy Spirit does in the world, in the church, and in the individual believer, know that whatever his ministry is, it is a helpful one. And there are three ministries of the, of the Spirit that, were, um, that I always try and include in any study of the Holy Spirit. Uh, one ministry in the world and two in the church. And each ministry is described by a Greek preposition. Uh, para, en, and epi. Each of these words describes the Holy Spirit's relationship to a person. Um, start off with the first para, which will answer the question, what does the Holy Spirit do in the world? Now, the, um, in John 14, verse uh, 16 and 17, Jesus, when he, he promised the Holy Spirit, uh, he said the Holy Spirit would come, but he said the Holy Spirit is with you and will be in you. In the Greek, word para means with. The Holy Spirit is with you. Jesus was telling the disciples that the Holy Spirit had already been with them, but would be in them. And we'll see pretty soon that the Holy Spirit is in believers, but still has a ministry to unbelievers. Jesus also tells the disciples in John 16, where we read that the Holy Spirit, when he sends it, will convict of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. This is the ministry of the Spirit to the world, now, in this age. This is what the Holy Spirit is doing, right now, with unbelievers, and I believe believers as well. God is intent on saving the world. He's all about saving the world. And the Holy Spirit, the Helper, is working hard to that end. Uh, so right now, the Holy Spirit is working on the hearts of men and women, convicting them of sin, of their sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. So let's look at these three things, okay? First, sin. Jesus says, when he has come, he will convict the world of sin. He says, I'm going to send you the helper, you, the church. I'm going to send you the helper. And when he comes to you, the church, he will have another ministry. And it's a ministry up to the world. And he will convict the world of these three things, sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin. But... That means we have to clear something up. The Holy Spirit is not the same thing as your conscience. Okay, I want you to know that. Um, you know, the Holy Spirit isn't Jiminy Cricket in, in Pinocchio. The Holy Spirit is not your conscience. A conscience can be wrong. A conscience can be conditioned by culture and assumptions. And the Holy Spirit cannot. Okay, a, a, for, for a, a look at a, a conscience that can be... Um, you know, twisted and, and, and uh, just shaped by culture and kind of incomplete. Read Huckleberry Finn. It's all about this, actually. Paul talks about how for some people, eating food offered to idols defiles the conscience. That does not mean that the Holy Spirit is defiled 
when those people eat that food sacrificed to idols. He says, for some it is defiled, and for others it's, it's not. It's not an issue. The Holy Spirit doesn't have selective morality, but a conscience does. The Holy Spirit's conviction is primarily to drive the person to faith in Christ. Now look back at this verse in John. He will convict the world of sin because they do not believe in me. That's the sin that the Holy Spirit convicts of, primarily. I do believe that the Holy Spirit works with the human conscience to convict of sin, but the Holy Spirit is not convicting for the sake of condemning, just to make you feel bad. But he, he's convicting of this sin primarily, unbelief in Christ, in order to also convict you of righteousness. What does it mean to be convicted of righteousness? It says the Spirit convicts of sin because they do not believe in Jesus, and of righteousness because Jesus is departing. It says of righteousness, verse 10, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. So the Holy Spirit points out to the unregenerate person, you have missed the mark. This is really the first ingredient of the gospel. A gospel presentation must include this awareness that man is lost. And each individual person has missed the mark. They've fallen short of the glory of God and sinned against a holy God. But the Holy Spirit also convicts the person's soul of righteousness, letting them know not only that, there is a mark. There is such a thing as perfection. Morality is not neutral or subjective. But there is a, a, a perfect measure of righteousness, and you have to hit it. It is demanded of humanity to hit this mark. 1 Corinthians 6.9 says, The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus even said to his disciples, Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, that's Matthew 5, verse 20. The Holy Spirit carries these ideas and concepts into the heart of a person, generally through the presentation of the gospel. But what's this have to do with Jesus going away? Well, I'll tell you, when Jesus was on the earth, walking around Galilee and Jerusalem and the neighboring territories, the people around him knew that he was the standard to live up to. Disciples followed him, enemies were threatened by him, it was very clear that he was better than everyone else they had ever met. When you're around someone perfect, you are convicted of, or by, righteousness. In the most simple of terms, you know this if you've ever shown up to an event drastically underdressed. And, and you walked in, and you want to curse the person that said the event was just casual and wear whatever, because obviously no one else heard that. Um, and, and you're convicted. There's a conviction by your, your lack of measuring up. When you go around someone perfect, you are convicted of, or by, righteousness. With Jesus gone, the Holy Spirit, who testifies of Jesus, verse 26 of chapter 15, still convicts of righteousness. That righteousness that needs to be measured up to. And then, of course, the Holy Spirit convicts of judgment. Verse 11. Of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. The ruler of the world is judged. The Holy Spirit convicts the sinner not only that they have sinned and that the righteousness of God is a thing and righteousness is required by God. 
and that apart from him, you are on the losing team. That's the, that's the last ingredient. The Holy Spirit convicts you of your position on the wrong, uh, the wrong team, the wrong side of the war. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This is why in evangelism you encounter defensive people. Sometimes it's because you are offensive and you need to repent of that, but not always. Oftentimes the Holy Spirit has already been hammering away at the rock of their hearts. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, I believe he does this apart from the believer. I believe that he does this through through a variety of means, but it's also notable that Jesus says he's sending the helper to the disciples, and when he has come to the disciples, then the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. I believe that this is also the ministry of the Spirit-filled church. This is the ministry of the Spirit-filled believer. We, by our righteous living and true preaching, convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. 2 Corinthians 2.16 says, To the one, we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. That's our ministry. Now, all of this is new. Maybe it's new to some of you. It's certainly new and mysterious to the disciples. They would be working out the, the truth of all of this for the rest of their lives. And I hate to break it to you, but so will you. In verses 12, Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. This would be the relationship that the disciples would have with God until their death, being led into deeper and deeper truths by the Spirit of God. He will glorify me, verse 14, and he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine, therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. Verse 12, and he says, I have many things to tell you, but you just can't handle it yet. It's Jesus' way of saying, you ain't seen nothing yet. There, there have been people in the church who have thought, we'll just pay attention to the red letters. You know, that's the essence of Christianity throughout the rest. That's really problematic. That's a big problem to try and get like a Jesus-only kind of faith. I mean, it sounds good, right? Because Jesus is God. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. He's the best. But to just kind of try and reduce the gospel to only the things that Jesus said would be actually canceling out some of the things that Jesus said. The essence of Christianity includes the revelation given to the apostles in the rest of the New Testament. Jesus confesses that his teachings to the disciples were incomplete which really reiterates a point that I think all four gospel writers really make, which is that Jesus didn't come just to teach. He came teaching. He did teach. He did preach. But that was not his primary purpose of coming to this earth. Jesus came to die. Jesus says, I haven't told you everything yet. I haven't given you the full message yet. There's more to come. But then he promises completion. In verse 13, he says, The Spirit of truth will guide you into all truth. Now this verse 
ought to make you want to read the New Testament, and the Old Testament for that matter. It's all inspired by the same Spirit. But the Comforter here speaks truth, and the Comforter, the Helper, is going to think of uh, speak of things to come. Uh, that's especially true for John, of course, who saw you know, his visions recorded in the book of Revelation. But all acts, the foundation for the church age which we are in, is spirit-led. Every epistle that we have in the New Testament is spirit-authored. We have the scriptures because the Comforter revealed the truth to these people. In verse 14, Jesus sums up again, really a, a central ministry of the Holy Spirit, saying, He will glorify me. In verse 26 of chapter 15, he said, He will testify of me. Here he says, He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit has a ministry of re revealing Jesus to us, and the Holy Spirit has a ministry of revealing Jesus through us. And Jesus has a ministry of revealing the Father to us through the Spirit. They really are very similar. And now you, as a Spirit-filled Christian, have a similar ministry. You have been brought into the Father's business. You have been brought into the work of Jesus and His Holy Spirit. And you now have a share in the work of revealing God to the world. Now, not everyone will like it. Not everyone will um, be receptive. Uh, we read 2 Corinthians 2.16, to some you'll be an aroma of death, leading to death. But to others, you'll be an aroma of life, leading to life. Who cares what you smell like? Who cares what you smell like? Don't be surprised when you are rejected for Jesus' sake. That's where the Spirit of God is leading you. But the comfort is that he will continue to lead you. He will continue to lead you to more truth. He will continue to be the comforter that glorifies Christ and reveals Christ to you so that you can know Jesus better than anyone alive in, in his day. You'll know him better than any of the disciples up to this point. It is for your benefit that Christ has gone to heaven where he ever lives to make intercession for us. It is to your benefit that he has gone and sent his spirit to comfort you and lead you into some great trouble for his name's sake. But yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Let that be our prayer. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, we worship you, we love you. Uh, we thank you that, that your spirit is gentle and kind patient with us. We thank you that your spirit leads us to all truth. We pray that we would be receptive to his leading, that we would have understanding of these deep things of God, and that we would continue till the end. We pray these things for your glory and your name. Amen.